Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The scorching heat of the dry season bore down upon the national park as a massive wildfire raged out of control. As the park ranger in charge of fire management, it was my responsibility to lead a team of brave firefighters and coordinate our efforts to contain the relentless blaze. Amidst the chaos and swirling ashes, my eyes caught sight of something inexplicable. Through the haze, I glimpsed enormous diamond-shaped eyes atop a head adorned with massive ears. In the odd tint of the fiery light, the object before me resembled a goblin, my disbelief threatened to make my eyes bulge from their sockets as I sat frozen, contemplating whether to scream or not. The goblin seemed engulfed by the fire, yet there it stood, laughing and screeching amidst the inferno. The sight sent chills down my spine, and for a moment I questioned the sanity of my own senses. Before long, the firefighters arrived their valiant efforts eventually quelling the raging flames that had threatened to consume the park. As the smoke cleared and the ashes settled, the mysterious goblin-like creature disappeared as if it had been nothing more than a fleeting apparition born of the fire's chaotic dance. Days turned into weeks and life within the park began to return to normal, yet the memory of that strange encounter lingered in the depths of my mind. An enigma that would forever be etched in my memory. I often found myself contemplating the nature of that creature. Was it a figment of my imagination, a trick of the fire's dance, or something else entirely? As the seasons changed and the scars of the wildfire gradually healed, I remained watchful, curious if the goblin would ever reveal itself once more. But the creature remained elusive, hidden within the depths of the National Park leaving me with unanswered questions and a sense of wonder. 
I was 17 at the time. I had already started deer hunting a few years ago and had been hunting on my grandfather's land during the season. One day, I had spent most of the day sitting in one of our quad stands with the windows that can latch up on all sides. It hadn't been an exciting day for me. There wasn't a deer in sight. The only noises came from distant rifle blasts or the occasional bird or rodent moving through the area. The sun was starting to set and I decided to start. Heading back, I was fairly deep in the woods, and it would take me roughly twenty minutes to get back on the trail and another ten to make it back to my grandparents' house. However, the moment I began walking back, I started hearing howling in the distance. At first I thought it was a dog, but then I heard more following in soup. At that point I realized it was coming from a pack of wolves, but I didn't think much of it as it was coming from deeper in the woods and was quite distant. Several minutes passed, then I heard the howling again. This time it was coming from the opposite direction, and it was closer. I never was one for being easily frightened, but my mind told me I should probably start moving faster. As the minutes passed, the wolves' howling became more erratic and louder. I heard it behind me, in front of me, to my left, and to my right. I was becoming paranoid, and I started to think. Am I being surrounded? Are they hunting me? I tried to block those thoughts from my mind, reassuring myself that wolves rarely ever attacked humans. But I was alone, deep in the forests these predators call home, and darkness was fast approaching. I was an easy target. Every noise made me jump from the crack of twigs beneath my feet to the scurrying of squirrels on the treetops. I gripped my rifle against my chest at the ready, prepared to shoot any wolf that came near me, I began hearing footsteps. They were growing louder and were coming from my front. The brush was deep and I had trouble making out what it was. Getting to my knees, I aimed my rifle, ready to shoot. A few moments later, I saw the blaze orange of my father's jacket as he came into view. He saw me aiming the rifle and Nilry had a heart attack, yelling, don't shoot. I don't think I was ever so relieved to see my father in my entire life. Many years ago, my buddy and I had spent the night repoing cars. It was about 3 a.m. We were in one of the cars we picked up, driving back to get another vehicle. Stopped at the light heading south on New Hampshire AV at the intersection of Route 70 in Toms River, New Jersey, in the turning lane, a 9798 Honda CRV pulls up next to us. I glance over, and the person in that car had no face. This was 2003, before all the weird masks that you can now buy, and I pointed out to my buddy, holy shit, dude, that person has no face. He looks over, confirms it. The left turn signal comes on, and no face heads east on 70. I asked my buddy about it years later, and he went white as a ghost. He thought he had dreamt it. That's why he never mentioned it. My dad drove long-haul, lumber, cattle, military, and hazmat for 33 years before he got out of a truck. This story comes from him, and while it's not especially paranormal, it makes me glad he's alive to tell it. I don't remember all the details, but he was driving long-haul back in the 70s or 80s in the Midwest. He decided to stop at a truck stop to get a few hours of sleep before continuing on and ended up leaving earlier than he planned because of a phone call, I believe. Listening to the news the next day, he heard that the truck stop he'd slept at was completely destroyed by a freak tornado less than two hours after he'd left. Still makes me shiver thinking my dad could have died that day in Tornado Alley. Bonus. I now work with him at a hazmat gasoline tanking company as a dispatcher. We lost the driver a year ago to a freak accident. Guy showed up to work like normal, took off over Donner Pass from Nevada to a station in Northern California. He got on Highway 20 to head further north, and a few miles past the junction, a large semi-tow truck heading the opposite direction crossed over into his lane before he could react. Both trucks exploded instantly, killing both drivers, and the resulting gasoline fire burned away part of the road. No remains. 
My dad remembers hearing about the wreck, checking our GPS tracking, and calling our driver's phone with no answer for an hour before it was confirmed. Reminds all of our drivers that the unexpected can happen at any moment on a seemingly normal day of work. I also worry immensely if I ever hear of a tanker accident on any of our regular routes and check in regularly with my drivers to make sure they're okay. All ten of our boys are my friends, and burying any of them would be devastating. So this story didn't happen to me, but to my fiancé and her mother. We both live in a rather large town in England. This town isn't really a nice place to be honest. It's rough in most areas, but it's home. This is relevant. So anyway, both my fiancé and her mother were at the hospital one day for a reason I can't remember, but it wasn't anything serious. They had to take the elevator to get to their floor, did their thing, and then got back on the elevator. When they got off, they said they were in a part of the hospital they'd never seen before. Even the elevator doors were different. They were like old and iron frame ones that you had to pull across yourself. They both went to get out when a nurse walked past them. She was dressed head to toe in an old 50s, 60s nurse uniform and looked at them very angrily, telling them they weren't supposed to be there. My fiancé then looked out the window near the elevator and noticed trees that weren't on that side of the building and that the weather had changed suddenly from being rainy and gray to sunny. This never usually happens in England in the middle of February time. They both immediately got back in the elevator and took it up to the floor. They were just on and then took the other one back down. To this day, not many people believe them. Some tried to say that maybe they were filming a TV show or film, but like I said, our town is quite rough, and the only show we had was one showing how rough it was. Plus, my fiancé never found any information in the local papers about some filming happening. Normally, if some filming had happened, it was breaking news for our town. The hospital still freaks me out to this day, and I refuse to walk about it alone. This happened fairly recently. About six months ago, my brother, my mother, Ann and I were driving home from my grandparents' house. It was about 9 p.m., and we were driving down a very long road that stretched for miles on end. At this point in time, we couldn't see anything without our headlights, so they were on the brightest setting. As we were driving down this road, we suddenly heard what seemed to be a motorcycle revving next to us. But as we looked out of our windows, we saw nothing. This noise kept fluctuating, getting louder and quieter as we kept going down the road. This noise dragged out for another five minutes as we were trying to figure out where it came from. We turned off the radio, opened and closed the windows, and even stopped the car to only still hear this revving noise, and keep in mind there were no houses, cars, towns for miles. We still haven't figured out where the noise came from and haven't heard it since. We still talk about this paranormal occurrence to this day as a reminder to never drive down that road at night again. When I was a kid, I lived in Clinton, Tennessee. Both parents worked full-time, so I was often sent over to stay with my grandparents who had a plot of land in the vicinity of, but not right in, Moshem, near Greenville. Both of them had been in East Tennessee for their whole lives, in that area for a good many years. They had been established at their home for some decades before this story and remained there a good time after. Recently, I had reason to return to that area, Tennessee, after having spent the majority of my adult life in Minnesota. Being in and around the area, driving the same roads, made me reminiscent about my lazy summer days tucked away at my grandparents'. Learning to shoot on the same point twenty-two with which Grandpa had taught Mom feeding fish at a neighbor's stocked pond or spotting deer and bear with binoculars from the back porch. When I relayed this to my mom, she in turn told me a story about a time I scared my grandpa half to death, then lied about hanging out with Bigfoot. At first, I had no idea what she was on about. Then I remembered exactly what actually happened with startling clarity. 
new context given by the experience adulthood provides. And no, this is not about Bigfoot or a cryptid. Before we start, some information about my grandparents' land. Their house was on a small hill surrounded by a grass lawn. The lawn gave way to a smallish hayfield, then the wood line. Those woods lasted for a good half mile to either side of the home, and a good several miles to the back. I hated the hayfield because it was too pokey to play in, but liked to hang out in a creek that ran behind it. To get there, I would walk to the edge of the property just in the wood line to avoid the hay. While at my grandparents, the only rules were that I stay where I could see the house, so the house could see me. I was to take a whistle with me anywhere I went wimp. I didn't take the whistle, seeing it is a badge of my regrettably young age, and the best part of the crick was out of sight of the house. That was the only stretch where it got deeper than my knees, and thus the only part where I could swim. Naturally, I spent much of my time in that water splashing around, skipping stones, and being a kid. One day I was playing in the creek when I noticed someone. It was a man, a stranger, on the bank watching me. He had long hair, a beard, and pale skin, so dirty it was stained. I could not tell his age and simply thought of him as old. I have no better guess now, as he clearly went through long years of hard living. He wore no shirt on, no pants, only a wrap of dirty cloth around his waist that I thought of as a Moses dress, thanks to some illustrated Bible stories. Around his neck there were multiple necklaces made from knotted tatters of cloth, fiber, and string. In those knots were various pieces of detritus, mostly bones, but some flowers and bits of dark glass. When I first saw him there by the creek, I was terrified, terrified frozen still. The man, however, was smiling. He gestured from his squat with an outstretched arm, fingers down, in a kind of don't-stop-for-me wave. I didn't react, startled and reeling. Then he splashed at me, still smiling. He did it again. I splashed back, and soon we were playing. We both threw water at each other. He jumped into the creek and stomped around with me, laughing all the while. He threw rocks into the water, and so did I. I pushed him. He pushed me back. We carried on for some minutes until my grandma called for me. With her voice, a switch had turned off. The man stopped in his tracks, gaze fixed back toward the house. Then, as my grandma kept on hollering, he looked to me. He crept back to his side of the creek, barely disturbing the water, then slid into the brush, completely silent the whole way, holding my gaze. Once he was out, if sight, I waited in the water until my grandma found me. She wanted to know if I was alone. I said no. She became very tense, asking who was with me, while looking around. I didn't answer, didn't know how. Seeing no one, she pulled me back to the house without any more words, gripped like iron the whole time. At the house, the real inquisition began. I didn't really have new words, the event in this reaction overwhelming my ability to explain. Such silence further irked my grandma, and I was swiftly placed in a corner, held without bail, awaiting patriarchal judgment. Around an hour later, my grandpa came home from work. He was told about my churlishness and was ready to set into me again when I started talking. I told him about the man, hairy and old, dressed like Moses. About how we played then, he disappeared. I remember they digested this for a few minutes before sending me to my room. I was happy to go, and happier still, Grandpa did not yell like he usually did when misbehaved. Later, I was brought out for dinner. I ate in the kitchen with Grandma, but Grandpa called me to the back porch. He was on the swinging bench, looking out over the hayfield turned red by the setting sun. He had kicked off his boots and put them next to his shotgun. I knew that was odd for the gun to be out of the closet. Previously, we had used it to shoot bottles. Some I would me throw them into the air like they were clay pigeons. These escapades were accompanied with speeches about how the gun was dangerous and only for adults to use. He went through my story again, his tone deadly serious. Eventually, he asked me how Harry was the man, really. I told him very, thinking this was the right answer. He asked where. I told him everywhere, like a bear. He ruminated on this, and I grew more nervous, worried I was in trouble, or causing trouble, 
just wanting the trouble wherever it lie to end. So when he finally asked me to swear in the name of Christ and on my mother that I was telling the truth about everything, I said I had been joking. He finally yelled then and sent me back to my room. The family memory became that I had hid by the creek and made up a tale about Bigfoot. At the time, everyone was very upset with me, and I was forbidden from going back to the creek or anywhere out of sight. The enforcement of this rule, like the others, was lackluster. Even so, for a time, I didn't go to the creek. In my memory, I stayed away for a very long time, but I am sure it was only a few days that hiatus feeling interminable to my elementary age self. When I did start going to the creek, I took a bucket of toys, mostly Godzilla, and a thick stick plucked from the wood line on the way. I think I was conflicted about what to do if the man came back, imagining either impressing him with my toy collection, or clubbing him, or both in turn. When he did show back up, he appeared next to me as I dozed under a tree on my side of the creek. I was once again gripped with terror. He was not smiling, his face expressionless as he lurked beside me, having watched for who knows how long before I smelled him. I scrambled away, leaving behind my stick and toys. Coming to my feet a yard out, I stood in the sun while the man watched me from the shade. Eventually, he crouched and started to look through my bucket. I remember becoming indignant as he examined my toys one by one, only to toss them into the dirt. It became too much, and I started to lecture the man, telling him about how he got me in trouble, how he was a weirdo, how he stank. At some point, he stopped looking through my things and calmly watched my tirade, face still neutral, eyes analytic. Once I had concluded my lecture, I sat back under the tree to pout, having become hot in the sun. I remember the man made a noise, a grinding kind of snort, and when I looked over at him, he was chuckling while he inspected the last few figures in my bucket. I wanted to laugh, too, but was more determined to stay sullen. Once everything was out of the bucket, the put-one figure, Kagora, back into the bucket. He then stood to his hunched fullest, took the bucket by its handle, began to make his way back into the woods. I stayed by the tree until he turned said something, not a word I knew or know, and gestured with a forward sweep of his hand. At first I didn't comply, despite knowing he wanted me to follow. After a few moments he yipped, clicked his teeth, and gestured again more emphatically. With this further prompt I did get up and come along, the man making approving noises and putting on his smile again. We went into the woods. The man lead, but he was naturally quicker and quieter, making it hard to keep up. Eventually, he would stop when he lost me, knocking on trees with sticks and whistling rhythmically so that I may find him in the vegetation. He never came back for me, opting instead to guide me forward with the noises. I became lost, having only a vague sense of my grandparents' place being behind me. After some time, maybe fifteen minutes, we came to a bald. The man had me wait there, indicated by patting the ground before going into the tree line alone. He returned from a different direction, pulling a sled. It was made from half of a discarded plastic drum and lined with small pelts and smooth bark. On the back half, there rested the fly-covered carcasses, squirrels, opossums, and other critters savaged into anonymity. On the pulling end, woven pouches were tied into place on it by the same eclectic cordage that made the man's necklaces. He put my bucket on the sled and tossed Ghidorah in a pouch. He then called me closer with a glottal noise and beckoning wave. I saw the sled's pouches held many odds and ends. Dried salamanders, mushrooms, metal bits, glass fragments. From one, the man pulled a square made from bound-together sticks, just big enough to slip over my wrist. From another, he pulled a piece of fool's gold and a small shard of geode crusted with a bit of purple crystal. These he handed to me with an air of business and a few more utterings of nonsense. He then patted the group for me to sit again. I did so without much bewilderment, understanding we had traded the same as exchanging Pokemon cards at recess. I did not much miss Ghidorah anyway, as he was a bad guy. The bucket was a loss. In retrospect, I think Ghidorah was chosen because its dull gold scales resembled something valuable. 
the bucket for its obvious ability to hold things. The man came back and gestured for me to follow by slapping his thigh. I did this readily. During the hike back, I tried to keep up and pay attention. I did so moderately well, having to be whistled over a few times. I did notice that our path was not straight. The man lead me one way and then another, making turns unneeded by the lay of the land. We eventually came out by the creek, but from a different approach than we had left. I could hear my grandma calling for me again. Not from up on the hill, from out in the field. The man would not cross the creek, but pushed me to do so. I did, but did not go to my grandma. Instead, I crept back to the house and around to the opposite side. There I laid the shrubs by our front door, pretending to sleep I was found. I swore I had been there the whole time. When I was sent back to my room, I placed my fool's gold, crystal, and charm in my bedside table for safekeeping. The next day, I went back to the creek to pick up my toys. The man was not there. However, throughout that summer, he did visit me again, to sit under the tree or throw rocks at the water, or yammer softy to himself. I would bring snacks and candy to share, and he would likewise give me stringy dried meat, which I ought not to have ate, or honeysuckle blossoms, which I still would eat, taken from my old bucket. He seldom visited long, and never splashed and whooped like he did on that first meeting. At this point, you may be wondering why I have posted to Backwoods Creepy. And not Backwoods Weird But Wholesome, I guess. Well, there are two more occasions I wanted to account. One gruesome, one awful. The eventful one occurred near the 4th of July. I had brought two boxes of bang snaps to the creek. The man was initially wary of the little fireworks, but quickly came to appreciate their miniature pyrotechnics. He took the box I gave him gratefully. Even taking the empty box, likely for the wood shavings, which are excellent tinder. During the use of the bang snaps, I had scared a turtle into the water and to the opposite bank. It sat there watching us from the far shore. The man, after stowing the bang snaps in the bucket, noticed the turtle. With little thought, he scooped up a smooth stone and threw it with force and accuracy into the turtle. He then waded over to retrieve the slider which struggled meekly in his grasp, one leg knocked clean off. On my side of the river, he took from the bucket a new piece of stone. One side was rounded and fit in his hand. The other came to a flinty cutting edge. Working with deft experience, the man began chopping the live turtle above its neck, pulling up on the shell top. The thing struggled and bled as it was bisected. The dome eventually coming free, the turtle dropped to mingle its viscera with dirt and sand. The man rinsed the shell in the river, then offered it to me. In wordless horror, I ran. That evening, I came back to shuffle the dead turtle into the flowing waters of the creek. The shell itself was nowhere to be found. This experience did nor deter me from going to the creek or the man from visiting again. However, sometimes he would try to call me away from the creek with thumps and whistles. I would tell him I heard him and refused to move. On some occasions, he would join me. On others, he would leave. The last time we met, we were sitting under the tree sharing cow tails. From the woods, there came whistling and the staccato knocking of a woodpecker. The man looked up and whistled back. There were a few more such exchanges before he stood collected his bucket and beckoned for me to follow. I was curious and felt comfortable with the man as a guide, so I did his ask. He took me back to the bald, a direct path this time, periodically stopping to call or respond to the other in the wood. Waiting for us at the bald was a woman and a child. The woman was dressed the same as the man, topless wrapped at the waist. She was dirty, with long hair and a wiry frame. The child was in a similar state, wearing a sack that went to their knees. The man sat on the ground, and the woman joined him, sitting in his lap, partly in his lap, but leaning forward so that her elbows rested on her crossed knees. She had dark brown eyes that were fixed to me. The other child would not look up. I didn't know what to do, and didn't speak. The other kid lifted their sack to wipe at their nose, and I learned under all that dirt they were a her. The man made a noise and drummed on woman's bare back. 
The kid looked at them, still hanging her head, hair covering her face. The woman yammered and swatted at the girl lazily, the man echoing her noises, slapping skin to skin once more. At this bizarre scene, the girl approached me, stopping close enough I could smell her and hear her wheezing breath. She was thin, but not emaciated, and slightly taller than me, should she have straightened up. The man and woman fussed some more. Then the girl leaned close to me and pressed her cheek to mine. Her hair was in, between us, greasy and cold. She made no move to embrace me, no move at all, only pressing limply against me and breathing so loud it was all I could hear. During this time, the woman approached. She pulled the girl back by her shoulder with one hand and delivered a flurry of slaps to the crown of the girl's head. The woman then gathered the girl's hair in one hand, using the other to sweep back her bangs. The girl was then made to look at me, face bare. One side of her jaw was bulged out, smooth skin over a lemon-shaped bump. Her mouth was twisted by this deformity. Her nose faced to one side, as if affixed sideways and leaked a trail of clear snot. One eye was bulged and roomy, the other startlingly regular. It looked at me blank and dark brown. The woman gave the girl's head a little shake, spat off to the side, and cooed like a dove as she smiled at me. I ran. There was commotion behind me. I think the girl was pushed to the ground. I did not look back, and they did not pursue. My flight ended at my grandparents' house, my absence unnoticed. I chose not to tell anyone what happened, wanting to forget, not wanting to get in trouble, not thinking about the girl, the couple, what was intended for me. I spent that August inside whenever I visited my grandparents. I begged not to be taken, claiming it was boring and lonely. Sometimes, when I sat on the porch or went from the car to the house, I'd catch a snip of bird call on the wind or the distant tapping of wood and hurry inside. My grandma could tell something was wrong and made an effort to entertain me in town. My grandpa cared in his own way, involving me in his errands as he never had before. Eventually, school started. Classes and friends eased me away from thoughts of the dirty man or the people in the clearing. Time did the rest. I think now that all of the people in the clearing were of a family, but their features, white skin, brown eyes, brown hair, are common enough that they all could have been unrelated. I'm sure they lived together. They knew each other's signs and signals. They used their own words. I know that the Smokies are full of tales of feral people, wildman men, and superstition. I also know that they are full of people living in unlikely ways, in unlikely places, and that those real people call others kin, and that, through the taint of human connection, even a recluse living in a run-down shack is someone somebody. I guess I am asking if the people in my story are somebody, someone, or if they are known, or if their behavior rings any bells, belies any known intention. I figured here, where the tale would not be discounted out of hand, might be the right place to ask. I live in a small town, around 7,000 people. In the south of Sweden, so it's still kind of secluded, especially at night, I still cannot explain what me and my friends saw. The thing about our town is that it gets very quiet close to midnight. This particular night, I followed my friend home since she lives in... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In a bad area. Time was around 22.30. As usual, the only sound was our footsteps and the occasional car passing about one every ten minutes or so. Me and my friend were talking about life when everything went very quiet. I could clearly hear my own breathing. This made both me and my friend stop and have a look around. We were standing in the middle of a schoolyard when we saw a bright light. At first we thought it was a firework or something, but it made no sound at all. It moved past us at roughly 30 kilometer an hour, around five meters off the ground flew in a straight line before it reached a couple of trees where it sped up and flew away out of sight, still silent and in a straight line. I've tried looking up what it could have been, and the closest I've come to finding out is that the ball, roughly the size of a football, was a ball lightning. I'm still not sure since it was a clear winter night. We rarely have thunderstorms in the winter. The ball didn't have any lightning striking out from it either. It was just a bright white light floating in a straight line, completely silent. I've lived in southern New Jersey all my life, and naturally have heard all the stories about the Jersey Devil. I haven't believed all of them, but I do believe that the Jersey Devil, or something cryptid, is out there. In the summer of 2006, some friends of mine and I took a ride to the Pine Barrens, about a 30-minute drive. We weren't looking for anything in particular, but were hoping we would see something along the lines of proof of the existence of the Jersey Devil. We were on Bulltown Road, near Batstow Village, where we had heard of a lot of sightings and some strange things going on around there. As we were driving, we passed by an old abandoned house and thought nothing of it. After a while of not seeing much aside from deer and an occasional owl, we decided to turn around. As we went by that old house, we saw what appeared to be bright green eyes peering out a window. Armed with just flashlights, we began to drive up to the house, but then the eyes disappeared. Next, a noise caught the attention of me and my friend who was in the front seat with me. She shone her flashlight in time for us to see something swoop over the car. By the time we could react to it, nothing was around. We went outside to investigate, but all that could be found were hoof prints in the sandy soil. The prints were too big to be deer and too small to be horse. As far as what swooped over the car, it was dark in color, but was large, larger than any bird that I know of. On July 11, 2020, at approximately 22 hours in Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania, my son and I were on top of the roof after observing the local fireworks show. The fireworks had ended five-plus minutes prior to this. He was positioning his camera towards the constellation of the Big Dipper, Ursa Major, in order to photograph Comet Neowise. I noticed something moving. The object, as best as I can describe it, was the shape of a manta ray, as you would see it in the ocean, looking at its underbelly from below the creature. This object moved quite fast from right to left, almost directly above us. My son then saw the object and turned attempting to photograph it. I lost sight of the object after only maybe three seconds of seeing it move, but he said he saw the object make a turn and backtrack toward where it came from before losing sight of it. We both described the object as almost translucent, with no visible lights at all. Earlier, I was flying my Typhoon drone to photograph the fireworks, so the size was similar, but moving much faster. 
I am unsure if the object was 300-plus feet above us, or higher and larger than the drone, though the speed tells me it was lower. Again, this was not a drone or any type of aircraft. It made no noise and had no visible wings. The entire episode lasted maybe three, five seconds. By the way, I've been a police officer in this town for over 20 years. In the spring of 2009, I was sent to Chechnya with my platoon to fight the enemy using unconventional means. Our mission was to divert supply lines and gather intelligence by talking to villagers. I remember how rainy and foggy it was during that time of year. One night, while retrieving a cache of buried weapons, my team noticed some lights in the forest. We could see them with the naked eye, but they were quite far off. It appeared to be ten small lights, all moving erratically. I then noticed what sounded like voices or whispers. It sounded like two people speaking Chechen. It was very quiet at first, but it started to gain in frequency until it sounded like they were whispering right next to my ear. Soon ten more voices joined in the whispering, all speaking at once. I began to panic, fearing that we had been made. I thought maybe the lights were a distraction a common tactic used by Chechen soldiers, and we would be ambushed. My teammate and good friend Ivan suddenly started speaking loudly as if he was trying to communicate with his father who had died two years earlier. He started to run towards the light, dropping his gun in his pack. I assumed that he had lost it, or the enemy was playing with our minds. Fearing for my friend and worrying he might give up our position, I chased after him. Ivan just kept repeating, I'm coming, Father. He was in a dead sprint, running towards the light. As we got closer and the lights got bigger, I found it odd that I could make out no definition in them. Nobody or nothing was behind them. They just looked like lights floating in midair. That was strange to me, I recalled. Uh, Ivan, now on his knees, arms at his side, was in front of a body of water, directly in front of the lights. He seemed to be in a trance, and despite my attempts, I couldn't believe what was happening before my eyes. My friend Ivan seemed to be in a trance, talking to his father in the strange lights in front of us, despite my attempts to snap him out of it. In that moment, my only concern was to avoid getting shot. Eventually, the commander arrived and looked at Ivan in the lights before muttering, The fairies have him. I had never considered anything paranormal before, and... I didn't know what to make of it. Ivan eventually passed out, and when I looked back up from his body, the lights were gone. It was terrifying. We carried Ivan back to our original location, but he had no memory of what happened. It was like he was in a coma, and he couldn't remember anything from that day. The experience was extremely weird, and it's the strangest event that ever happened in my entire life. Looking back, I believe that the lights had sinister intentions for us, possibly trying to lure Ivan to the water to drown him. The next day, we just nodded at each other and carried on with the missions. In the end, I became disenchanted with the Russian military and exchanged important information with U.S. officials. As a result, I was granted citizenship and now live in the U.S., having cut off all ties with my family. I have resumed my career as an infantryman, now as an American. A friend and I were walking up the Phantom Trail and about 100 yards into it, I saw what appeared to me as a Bigfoot impression right in the middle of the trail. There was no doubt as to what it was, and as my friend caught up with me, I asked him if he saw what I saw. There was no doubt in his mind of what he saw seeing either. The print was about 14, 16 inches long, but what impressed me was the width which was about 6, 8 inches just below the toes. We walked about a mile up and continued to see these prints. I was armed with a .45 automatic and my friend with a 9mm, so we felt safe but continued slowly with no smells or incidents. After about a mile, I noticed another set of prints, only smaller, come right into the trail. This kind of made my friend and I a little more nervous. About twenty feet later, a third set appeared. This set was a little smaller than the second, 
but we were sure that it was a third. At this time, we decided to turn back. We smelled nothing, heard nothing, but felt as if there was a presence that knew we were there. It was a Saturday night, and I was hanging out at the bar with my friends having a great time. We were all talking about how our lives have been since we last saw each other a few years ago. They all told me how they got some boring, good-paying jobs, but I'm right where I want to be at. I do photography and fell in love with it when I was a kid. It took me a few years to get above average pay, which was a pain, but I still love what I do. We all exchanged numbers later that night and left. Walking to my car, I got a text from my boss about a new project he wants me to do. The theme was nature, and I was lucky since my house is right next to a forest. I responded that I was down to do this project. It was really late at night around 2 a.m., and I decided to go into my backyard and see where I would be going tomorrow. Draco, my four-year-old lab, was barking and whining to go outside. I got some food for him so we could relax in the backyard. I was on my phone scrolling through my social media apps, minding my own business until Draco began to viciously bark towards the woods. Draco, come over here, I yelled out. He ran back towards me, quick as a rabbit. I could tell he was in fear of what he had seen. I began to comfort him and investigated the woods to see if I could see what was scaring him. All I saw were six bright white dots looking toward me, but I couldn't make out what it was. It must have been the raccoons. They're always out by my house in the woods. I shouted out to the things to go away, but they did not budge. Draco and I went back inside, and I kept a close eye on the woods the whole way. We went to bed because it was late, and I had to see my boss in the afternoon. I woke up and looked around because I had an ugly sense that someone was watching me. I looked at Draco, and he had a dead stare looking out the window. I slowly turned my head towards the door to see the same bright white dots, but I could make out that they were the eyes of some creature, not a raccoon, but something else. They slowly started to fade away into the darkness. I turned to the other side of my bed and saw them right in front of me. They looked like tall humans, but it was too dark to see any other details. They suddenly jumped at me, and that's when I woke up. This is all just a terrible nightmare. I brushed it off and went to go feed Draco before I left to see my boss. For some odd reason, Draco would just stare at the woods for a few good minutes, then just go back to laying down. I couldn't investigate because of time, so I laughed and made my way to work. My boss, Derek, told me to meet him at a coffee shop near my house so he could talk about what he wanted some pictures of. I need you to get some good shots of our forest. I know you live in one, basically, so this shouldn't be hard, he said. I left and went to go get ready for the job. I had to stop at a store to get the right lens for this job in particular. Hopefully the nighttime shot can be quick because I don't feel safe going in there alone. By the time I found the right lens, it was already 5 p.m. and daytime began to fall into the night. The sunset looked amazing, so I snapped a shot. On my way home, I was wondering how Draco was doing. I mean, why would he keep staring outside for a few minutes before laying down? Was there someone out there? When I got home, Draco was sleeping, and it seemed as if everything was the same as I had left it. I let Draco outside, and I went to take some shots of the forest before nighttime hit. I got a good 30 pictures in of just random things, and decided to take good ones tomorrow with more sunlight. Since it was already nighttime, I decided to take the night pictures today to get them over with. I had a fear of stepping in the woods ever since I had that nightmare last night. But it was my job, and I needed to get it done quickly. I went back to the house to let Draco inside and to get my other lens for the night shots. It was 8 p.m., and the light of the sun disappeared while night struck the sky. The stars were out, and I had to get a good angle with the trees and have the stars in the background. I walked a little further and saw a trail leading down. I went over and noticed it led to a massive cave. It was dark, and the only source of light that I had was the flashlight from my phone. I flashed over to the cave to see if I could see anything before I went inside. I wanted to look around first. 
As I was walking away, I heard the sound of something moving inside the cave. It sounded as if it was getting closer and trying to leave the cave. I did not want to know what was coming up from inside, so I ran down the trail to where the campers are normally. When I got there, I went up to the man I see every day. Hey, I know you don't know me, but do you know about that cave back there down the trail? I said to him out of breath, waiting for a response. What do you want to know about it? He asked very confusedly. I work for a photography company, and I want to take some pictures inside there. But I heard something moving around. Do you know anything about it? I asked him. If you're going in there for some pictures, then you might as well take your death photo while you're at it, he said, seeming mad. I just shrugged and went back to the cave to take a few pictures and leave. On my way there, I tripped on something and fell over. I turned my flashlight on to see what I had stepped on. It was a large footprint. It had to be roughly 20 inches long. It led to the cave along with several other footprints. I knew there was something big and I had to get a picture of it. I made my way to the cave entrance. Inside it was dark and silent. Just the beat of my heart echoed through the large cave. I took a single picture with a flash on. I checked the picture and put the exposure up to see where the next entry will be. I went to the opening on the right and took another picture and did the same as the last time. When I checked the picture, I saw the bright white eyes, and when I put the exposure up, I could see humanoid figures standing there watching me. I looked into the darkness, and they were standing right in front of me. I had to look up at them, and I didn't move a single muscle. Something behind them fell down. The sound of rocks falling over. The eyes turned around, and behind them were more bright white eyes popping out of nowhere. I went back to where I came from until I saw the dim light from outside. When I made it out, I ran straight to my house and called my boss immediately. I sent him the picture, and he was in shock at what I got a hold of. I grew up in a very rural area. As a kid, I'd do a lot of exploring. Once, when I was about 11 and my brother was 8, we were riding our bikes down an old trail on the edge of our neighbor's property. We frequented abandoned dirt roads often, so we knew if we just kept following the trail, we'd eventually end up at the main road, about a quarter of a mile from our driveway. We came across an old red iron lean-to, there were cow carcasses hanging from the top post in various states of decay. This spooked us, and we got out as quickly as possible. We really didn't speak about it after that, but both still explored. I had found a house when I was about 16 or so, but never had the courage to go in. It was about two miles behind our neighbor's 22-acre property line. I didn't really worry about it because of how far and I didn't want to go that far out on someone else's land like that again. Now, here's where it gets weird. At 22, me and two other friends got drunk and decided to go exploring. I knew how to get to this house because there's a trail. It's overgrown from years of neglect, but it's still a viable trail. We get to a clearing and there's the house. There is a rusted 50s oikup truck parked beside the home. It's white wood and still in pretty decent condition. The lawn was shorter grass, almost like it was fresh cut, and it looked like they needed to weed eat around the truck and house. I didn't think much of this at the time. We don't plan to go in at first. We walked around the back and saw there was a whole trailer behind the house. The two were connected by a crudely made awning and porch. We could see the back door of the house and the front door of the trailer were both open. One quart glass jars were everywhere. I mean dozens. Some on the ground under the porch, a lot on the platform. There were so many they spilled out of the trailer and house. Most were empty, but some had a clear liquid. We decided not to enter the trailer because that seemed to be where the majority of the jars were. We were unsure of broken glass and assumed the liquid was moonshine as it wasn't growing algae like some of the others. We go through the back door and find the house was in disarray. Paper everywhere. Tons of water damage. The roof and floor were caving in in some places. I found a calendar from 1973 hanging. Old toys and books were just scattered. 
No seating or bedding furniture, but there were a couple of tables and a desk. The craziest thing I found was a box within that desk. It contained pencils, blank papers that had a write-in shorthand book and some records. The records showed large sums of money being paid not only to the local school, but also to several people. The area I grew up in is a lot of old money, generational wealth people, and I recognized many last names. One of the names I recognized was my 70-something-year-old and lords. The sums of money were anywhere between fifty and 6000 The larger amounts were paid to the school, and frequently, too. They'd get a check at least once every week, sometimes twice a week, never for less than 1000 At this point, one of my friends found a plate and glass on the kitchen table. It was dirty, like it had food on it at one point. There were dirty dishes in the sink, too. This kind of weirded us out, so we left at this point. It's been about ten years since that day. A few weeks ago, I'm shooting a shit with my dad at about two in the morning. We were talking about living there for so many years and how we had so many memories. With it being so late, I felt a little spooky, so I told him about the house. I did not tell him about the receipts. After hearing my story, he kinds nods and says, Yeah, that's Mr. Cup's house. I'd never heard of this dude in the 20-something years I've lived in this house. The more I got to thinking about it, the more I felt like I remembered that name on the record. I asked my dad how he knows about the house, and apparently, when we were little kids, my parents had too much to drink one night and took some of their friends out there to go ghost hunting. He saw pretty much the same thing I did. He told how he gets to the location, and I realized the road I found those carcasses on as a kid was one of Mr. Cup's driveways. The other came out about a quarter of a mile to the opposite of my house. I then told him about the receipts and our now-deceased original landlord's name on them. He tells me he doesn't know about all the receipts, but he does tell me that way back in the 50s, Mr. Cup and our landlords, where it ends about where the property line was. Mr. Cup had proof of his side of the land. The landlord had filed a motion to stall the lawsuit, and eventually, after years of fighting, it was settled that the property Mr. Cup was living on was theirs. Some of the details in regard to why Mr. Cup didn't get his land are fuzzy to my dad. He does know that the landlords didn't tell Mr. Cup they he had to vacate because they didn't want him to appeal. So for about ten years they let him live there and didn't mess with him. At this point he's in his seventies and it's in the 1970s. The landlord gave Mr. Cup's property in addition to a lot of property behind our neighbor's acreage to her daughter as a wedding present. They forced Mr. Cup to pay them in order to stay. The daughter used the money to fund the clubhouse in the middle of the property. They also redirected his access road, the trail, to lead to the clubhouse. This went on for some time until the couple who were now in possession of the property decided to divorce. The guy was the brother to my little brother's best friend's dad. His family home was right down the road from all this. He managed to win all the property in the divorce, and the wife got the money. The first thing he did was go to Mr. Cup and sold him not only his property back, but also all the property that was originally the landlord's, including the property the club was on. So Mr. Cup closed off all access to the club and the access point furthest from him. He left the one closer to his home open. Then what? I had asked my dad. He shrugged. Nothing. He lived a few more years and then died. They found him at the kitchen table a few months after he had passed. I don't know who owns this property. Now, nor do I know who has been maintaining it. The only other person in this area with that last name spelled it different and was not originally from the area. I know nothing else about it. I don't even know what was in those jars. I think about this sometimes, and the more I think about it, the more questions I have answers. I saw an alien in my room and showed them a Mimi. I wrote this account six months ago because I needed to get this story off my chest. This experience was starting to affect my relationship, and I desperately needed to tell someone and move on. 
I decided not to go through with posting about it because I didn't want to seem cringe or have a bunch of people tell me that I was lying. Fast forward to today, and I'm finally feeling brave enough to share. Context. I'm female. I was 22 at the time, and in my last year of engineering school, still living in my parents' house. Since then, I've moved out and got a job in another city. Back in April 2022, I was laying in bed, relaxing, and had drifted off to sleep around 1 a.m. I'm a night owl and typically stay up well into the night. Sometime after I fell asleep, I was awakened by someone grabbing me from behind in an awkward hugging motion, like a bear hug, but more awkward and grabby. I slept on my side and would usually face the wall, so I needed to turn around to see who was touching me. My mom usually gets up for work super early, so I assumed it was her coming into my room to hug me and say bye for the day. I was horribly wrong. When I started to turn around, my vision was still blurry, and I couldn't see anyone standing directly next to my bed. I was confused because I had just felt someone touching me. Before I had even finished fully turning to see, my eyes had wandered to the corner of my room near my desk, and my body froze immediately. There was this unknown being floating directly above my desk. I'm even sure if being is the right word to use, but it looked humanoid. This being was slightly shorter than me. I'm five feet three, had a larger than normal head, and a tiny slit mouth, and their skin was this blackish, star-speckled color. I don't even know how to describe it, but they almost looked airy. Like if I poked them, my finger would go right through. I felt like I was looking into some sort of cosmic gas. It was really strange, but the most prominent feature I noticed was their gigantic, deep black eyes. The eyes somehow managed to be a deeper black than their skin. They were so huge and just very striking to see. When I saw them hovering over my desk, I made eye contact and my whole body froze. My immediate instinct was to get up and run away, but it was like I couldn't move my arms and legs no matter how much I thought I needed to. I was frozen still. A strange detail I remembered the other day was that when I made eye contact, all the ambient noise in the room was gone. It was completely silent, and we were just staring deeply into each other's eyes. It was like time completely frozen at that moment. While I was staring into their eyes, I felt something I had never felt before. I felt the most primal fear I could have ever felt. I felt like I had suddenly reverted into a caveman or something. I felt this horrible dread, a horrible terror. I kept thinking that I needed to get up and run. I needed to get away, but I couldn't move. And then I heard this message in my head. I can't exactly describe how I heard it. It wasn't as if someone said it to me, but as if it was directly planted into my own thoughts. It said, don't be afraid, and... I thought to myself, what in the world is going on? I was confused because I heard this message, but the being itself did not speak. Like their mouth didn't move. In fact, I don't remember any sort of facial expression ever being conveyed other than the creepy, intense stare. I felt a sort of calmness wash over me, and I blacked out a few moments after that. The next thing I remember is being seated at my desk. The being was gone, but I could still hear these messages in my head. I'm assuming they realized how scared I was and decided to hide themselves to avoid me freaking out again. I can't exactly remember the entire conversation word for word or how it even happened, but I remember the gist of it. Basically, I was shown these images of real-life war. Maybe the war in Ukraine? Mm images of war and things like cartoons and media, and I guess it wanted to know my opinions about both and the way the images made me feel. I can't remember my response, but I remember feeling that they were mildly satisfied with it. For a moment, I felt like there might have been a third presence in the conversation, like someone else was observing, but I'm not completely sure. At some point during the encounter, I felt awkward, and I grabbed my phone to look online, just looking for something to calm myself down. Nobody was in the room, but still, I felt like I was being watched intensely. 
It's worth noting that I have very severe social anxiety, and I was scared, but I didn't feel like I was in danger anymore. Anyway, I ended up finding some stupid memmy and laughing at it, and I got a feeling like the being was questioning my behavior like they seemed intrigued by the way I was acting. I remember holding my phone up in the air like, look, not knowing where they were, but trying to show them anyway. There was a moment of silence, and then the next thing I know, I was back in bed again like nothing ever happened. In the blink of an eye, my phone was lying next to me on the bed, and the screen was off. I grabbed it to look at the time. It was like 3 or 4 a.m. I checked my tabs to make sure I wasn't insane, and sure enough, the last page that I had been on was still open. I don't think they liked my memory. After this happened, I felt like I had been severely traumatized. I slept with a light on for several months after this happened. I talked about it constantly, so much so that I started to overwhelm my girlfriend with my behavior. I was paranoid all the time. I couldn't fall asleep without checking that same corner over and over again. I spent months researching other people who've had similar encounters, just trying to convince myself that I'm not crazy. I still do feel paranoid a lot of the time, and sometimes I convince myself that it wasn't real, and I was just dreaming sleep paralysis. But my body knows the truth. I still feel that horrible dread feeling when I think about what happened, especially when I think of looking into their eyes. My hands will shake and I start to sweat. My body goes numb. It's the only thing that keeps me 100% sure that it wasn't just a dream. I still find myself checking corners when I'm in bed at night, but it's gotten a lot easier to manage now that some time has passed. This experience has completely changed the way I see reality and consciousness, and definitely made me ask myself some tough questions about our existence on this planet.